Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you. We pray your blessings and your protection on Ray as he leaves. We pray, Father, for the C2R program and other programs like that that are dealing with the recovery of the addicts. And we just pray, Father, for strength, for guidance, for your leading in all of their lives, and that they would all find you and come to know you as personal Savior. We thank you for this time, Lord. We pray your blessings on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? It's good to see everyone here today. Um, I was looking at the congregation when I was standing back there as the service was going on and we were singing. And I was saying to myself, you know, it's remarkable how full the church is when everybody shows up on the same day. And so it looked, looked good. So I just appreciate that. We are in our study in Ephesians, and we are dealing with a passage and have been for the last couple of weeks dealing with family. We'll be continuing this for the next few weeks. But, you know, you look in the newspaper, you hear the statistics, and so many marriages are ending today in divorce, and um, so many of them are believers, people in church, people have been in church for many, many years, and their marriages are falling apart, and and everybody's quick to point the fingers to who's to blame. Was it the husband, was it the wife, what happened, what went on, that sort of thing. But in my experience, what I've discovered is this, that there's enough blame to go around. It doesn't really matter so much whose fault it is because probably, in some way, each party has acted sinfully in some form or fashion. That's the reason that the marriage has come to an end. Now, this is not a message on blame. This is not talking about blaming somebody. Instead, this is a message in messages, I should say, on instruction, first of all, to tell us what we need to know concerning the Scripture and what God says that we as wives and husbands should know in order to become better um, spouses and also to become better parents. So as we talk about this, there's going to be a lot of instruction, but there's also going to be a lot of hope. Um, I believe with all my heart, and I've told you this many times, that if both parties in a marriage will make a decision to do it God's way, that marriage will work every single time, if you'll just make a commitment to do it God's way. But inevitably, one party decides they're going to be selfish and not do it God's way, and inevitably the marriage breaks up. I want to encourage you that you cannot, you need to understand this, you cannot change your spouse. You can't force them into changing. You can't, um, you can't browbeat them into submission and changing. You can't do that. The only person that you are responsible for in the marriage is you. You have to change you. And if you change you, I think you'll be amazed at what your spouse will become. Because if you can become a different person, your spouse will too. And everything hinges on you just taking care of business for you and dealing with what God wants you to be and how God wants you to relate in this marriage. Now, last week we dealt with the role of the wife. We handled the passage in Ephesians 5 where it talks about submission. And how the wife's responsibility is to submit to her husband. We talked about what that meant. It's not what a lot of people think that it means. It's not talking about that she's of lesser value. It's not talking about her having less ability or less self-worth. It's talking about the preservation of the family. That if a wife and husband are always butting heads on who's in charge and which direction we're going in, then the marriage is doomed to fail. But it's also because that God wants the family to be a witness to the world about his love and his grace and what he can do in a person's life. 
And so it's imperative that the woman understand that when she marries her husband, she is voluntarily choosing. Catch that. She is voluntarily choosing to put herself in the position to allow him to lead that family. And God holds him responsible. He's accountable. And he's to be the leader of the home. They work together. They are equal in creation. They are equal in salvation. They're equal in every way. This is, has nothing to do with value, but it's an order uh, like you would in a, a business. Somebody has to be in charge and somebody has to have a final word. So this is the way God has set it up. Now, today we're going to be talking about the husband's role. It can be summed up in this verse. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Women look at that and they say, wow, we got the short end of the stick. You know, I'm supposed to submit to him and all he has to do is love me. Well, who doesn't love their spouse? You know, everybody will say, yes, I love my spouse. And so that's all the thing, that's all his responsibility is, that he just has to love me. Let me ask you, who has the hardest role in this relationship? Think about it. Now, if you're a wife, you'll probably say, well, I think the wives have the hardest role because of the fact they have to submit to a man that may not know what he's doing. I understand that, and that happens quite often. If you're a husband, you're saying, I've got the hardest role because I've got to love a woman that sometimes is just unlovable. And that's true, too. Now, I have an opinion, okay? I'm going to share it with you, and I don't want any tomatoes thrown at me, all right? But my opinion, the man has the hardest role. If you understand his role, you understand what it is that he's called to do. Because, yeah, in fact, he is called to love this woman who may be sometimes irrational, sometimes hard to deal with, sometimes unlovable. Yeah, just like him, she's that way too. But yet God says in spite of all that, your job is to love her anyway. His, his, he primarily determines what the family will be like. If a family is going to experience love within that, re, that family group, then it's going to probably be the husband's responsibility to do that. If there's going to be anger and, or communication or peace or joy or whatever, it's probably going to be on his shoulders to create that climate within the family. Now, see, we misunderstand at times what exactly as men our role really is. Because, hey, yeah, I love my wife. I told her when I married her and nothing's changed, so I just don't have to tell her anymore. You know, I love her. She knows that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Because in this context, you need to understand what it is that you're being asked to do. So you need to understand what love is according to the Scripture. And that's where we really have the irritation or the rub because so many times we, we talk about love, but we don't really understand what that means. So let me share with you some things, and I'm going to make a point here, so just bear with me, all right? But let me share some things with you. The New Testament was written in Greek. We all know that. It's a very precise language. Uh, for example, we have in our English language one word for love, just love. Well, how do you know if you're talking about your love for your brother, your love for your mother, your love for your wife or husband? How do you know which one you're talking about? Well, the context, you know, the context of the discussion gives you that answer. You know what that is. But in Greek, the Greek language, they have three different words for love. And each one 
meant something different. Now, let me just run you through this right quick, okay? For example, in the Greek language, one of the words for love is erotic, or eros, I should say, where we get the word erotic from. Uh, Eros is talking about the physical, sexual love between a man and a woman. Um, And the Greeks referred to that as love. And, of course, it is. We refer to it that way, too. We call it making love. And that's what it's talking about. Now, that particular word is not really in the New Testament, so we're not going to talk about that one. But we are going to talk about these other two, and it's imperative that you understand these, okay? Because the second one is phileo, which means brotherly love. It's where we get the name for the city of Philadelphia. Phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now, here's the way that word should be used, or is used, I should say. It is talking about your love, the love for one human has for another person. In other words, I can say, well, I love Ray and I love my wife. Well, okay, that's talking about my, my feelings primarily, what I feel, how I am uh, in love with that person. I care about them. It's talking about the way I feel about them. Um, I can also talk about loving my truck, hamburgers, and dogs. Same thing. It's talking about and focusing on the way you feel about something. So we use that term broadly to talk about love, and it's primarily focusing in on emotion. You're expressing that you love emotionally. You care about something. Now here's the third one, and this is an important one because it's the word agape. And although it includes feeling in it, that's not the primary emphasis of the word. This one is looking at how you show love. In other words, I love you. How do I know that? Because I have served you. I have given you money. I have helped clothe you. I have fed you. I have been kind to you. Whatever the context. Uh, We go on and on. In this one, you're talking about commitment. Um, Another uh, way of expressing agape love is kindness, mercy. In the King James, for example, this word, this particular word, is translated as charity. Because it's looking at what you do for the person. You are showing love. Now, emotion, like I said, is involved in it. It's not void of emotion. But it is emphasizing action. It is emphasizing what you do for the person in way of showing love. Now, watch this and listen carefully because I'm going to show you how these two words are used in context in a particular passage, okay? Now, we're not going to look at the passage. It'll take too long. I'm just going to show it. I'm going to talk about it. Do you remember the passage where Jesus was in the garden and, well, even before that, at the the Last Supper, and he's talking to the disciples and telling them what's going to happen. And Peter pipes up and he says, no, 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 no. We're not going to forsake you. And especially me, I will never forsake you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I will die for you. And he turns to Peter and he says, this night you will deny me three times. Or before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Well, it goes on. The, the night unfolds. Jesus is taken into custody. And the next day he'll be crucified. And sure enough, Peter did that very thing. They came up and asked, aren't you one of his followers? And he denied it three times. And he is devastated because he did it. Now, it goes on, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and he meets with his disciples later on now, because he walked to the earth after the resurrection for 40 more days. But during that time, he met with the disciples. And when one particular meeting is where he has this discourse with Peter. And here's how it goes. He says, Peter, 
do you love me? In other words, do you agape me? Peter, are you committed to me? Peter, will you serve me? Peter, would you die for me? And Peter's response is this. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. In other words, I love you with all my heart. I feel compassion for I, I want to be with you. I love you. Jesus asked a second time. He said, Peter, do you agape me? Will you die for me, Peter? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you. I, with all my heart, I love you. Now, Peter's getting irritated by this time, but he asks a third time. But this time he changes. And Jesus says this. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me with all your heart? And then he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with all my heart. I phileo you. Now, why did Peter, why was he reluctant to respond back to Jesus? Yes, Lord, I will die for you. Yes, Lord, I will be committed to you. Because, you see, he did that once before and it blew up in his face. You see, that night when when he denied Christ, he remembered vividly having said that, and it tore him up. I'm not saying it anymore. I'll do it, but I'm not telling it. I'm I'm not saying a word. And he did. He went on to turn the world upside down for Jesus, and yes, he died for him. But in that interaction, you see the difference between the words. Jesus is asking for commitment, dying for me, serving me. Peter saying, I feel love for you, and I will love you with all my heart. Now, in a marriage, all three aspects of love are needed. The erotic love is needed in a marriage. That's an important part. That's usually the reason why people come to get married in the first place. That's the driving force behind it. But they also need to be friends. And that's where the phileo comes in. Husband and wives should be the best friends that they each have. And they ought to rely on one another. And they ought to have feelings and passion and love uh, down in the depths of their soul for each other. That's an important part. People, How many people come and say, we're getting divorced because we've fallen out of love? Basically, they're saying the feelings aren't there. So the feelings are important. We're not denying that. But there's also the agape love, where husband and wife would die for each other, where they're committed to each other, they serve each other, they're there for each other, they're kind to each other and compassionate. All these things that come into showing love for another person. Now, with that in mind, Paul says here in Ephesians, Husbands, agape your wives. Agape your wives. Love your wives with a commitment that you will serve them, that you will honor them, that you would die for them. You see, when Jesus commands the husband to love the wife, he's not saying that feelings aren't important, but he's prioritizing. He's saying whether you feel it or not, do this. So the command to love the wife is a command to treat her differently. Now you've got to understand something, that in the ancient world that was... Something that was groundbreaking. This was news to them. Because in the ancient world, women were nothing more than a possession. Bought and sold on the open market sometimes. But every one of us as men are to respond to our wives in this godly way. And you know what? And here's the important thing that you need to remember. Everybody 
responds to kindness. Everybody responds to being forgiven. Everybody responds to thoughtfulness. Everybody responds to encouragement, honor, sensitivity, respect. All these things that are wrapped up in this term agape, the wife will respond to that if men just have enough sense to understand what love really is. It's not enough to say that, yes, I love you with all my heart. Yes, I would die for you, but no, I'm not helping with the dishes. You know? It just doesn't work. And so when, when Paul tells these, these husbands to love their wives, this is what he's talking about. Now let me jump in right quick. We're just going to take a few minutes and go through these verses here. Ephesians 5, verse 20, verses 25 through 27. Here's what he says. He says, Husbands, love your wives... Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In other words, like I said, just like Jesus did this for the church, the people that are believers, the church, do it for your wives. And notice what it doesn't say in the context of this passage. It never says if she deserves it. And see, there's where the rub really comes because we as men, we get angry, we get hurt, we get disappointed because you know what? For whatever reason, be it hormones or be it something I've done to her or being something, you know, she's upset. I don't like the way she's talking to me. I don't like the things that she's saying. I don't like that sarcastic attitude. I don't like what she's doing. So no, I don't love her, you know. And God says here, love her, agape love. You serve her, honor her, bless her. Even if she doesn't deserve it, you do it anyway. Because it involves sacrifice and commitment to a person, your spouse. Now it goes on. Look at the next couple of verses. Verses 28 and 29. He says this. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Now what is that talking about? He's, well, look, he's saying you have been joined together. You have been bonded together as one. And the wife that you have is the complement to who you are. It's the other part of who you are. It's the part that's missing from you in your life. And you are one. And so if you mistreat her, if you don't love her, then you're not loving yourself because she is part of you now. And so you need to understand that. So you feed and care for yourself, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, I care about me. He says, then care about her because that's part of who you are. Verses 30 through 33, now watch this. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There is a prof- this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, what is this one flesh business? Well, you're becoming one, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. One flesh. You're like-minded. You know what each other wants, what each other likes. You know how to make each other happy, how to make each other feel safe. You have common goals, common interests. You are molded together as one when you get married. This is a mystery. It really is, because nobody understands how this works. 
What is it about this relationship that two people come together like this and are so, in, so deeply enthralled, not just physically, but emotionally? Now, here's what I've noticed over 35 years of ministry. Now, watch. I'm going to give you a bit of wisdom. Take it for what it's worth, okay? There are two extremes that I've noticed when it comes to men or husbands. And somewhere, most of us fall somewhere along the middle of this. But um, let me give you the two extremes because some of you may be dangerously near the extremes. Let's say on one end of the spectrum, spectrum you have the passive husband. This is the guy who's grown up, but he's still a little boy looking for a mother rather than a wife. Some of you say, yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah, you do. Now, let me tell you something. You men that find yourselves being passive in the way that you deal with your wife, the way that you deal with your home, you just don't do anything. You can't, it's like pushing a rope with you. You can't get him going. You can't get him to take the lead. I have women all the time who say to me, I wish my husband was the godly leader of the home. I want that. I know what you mean. And basically what they've got is a husband who could care less and is absent. Now let me tell you, because if you fall into that category, men, here's a word of warning to you. Because you're, you're going to, it's like a wedge being driven in your, between your, you and your wife. If you don't lead in your home, then she will fill the void. She'll do it out of necessity, out of fear to protect her family, but she will assume the role. Now, here's the catch. She doesn't really want it. She doesn't really want it. And here's something else. She will resent you for it the rest of your life. She will resent having to pick up your slack. She will resent having to assume your role. She will resent you, and it will be a wedge driven between you. And you've got to understand this because you've got to step up, grow up, and be the man that God wants you to be and love her the way that God told you to. Now, here's the other extreme on the other end of the spectrum. Now, I've told you, most of us fall somewhere along in between. But these are the extremes. The other extreme is this. The controlling or demanding or the selfish man. This is the extreme where most of the abuse takes place because this is where you find men who are dominant uh, angry, overpowering. Uh, they're for somehow, some reason, and I've seen men in churches who do this. They take this idea of submission in the head of the home. They don't understand it. They only see that, hey, I'm the boss. And so what you've got is a man who doesn't understand what that means, trying to be the leader of the home, but he is dominating his wife. He is overpowering his wife. And just let me say this, okay? This one's doomed from, from the get-go. It is doomed. There's an oddity with, with a woman. Now, let me explain this, okay? I've noticed this. It has happened many times over the years of ministry. A woman will put up with this and put up with this and put up with this. They'll come in for counseling, and the man isn't going to change. He's like, um, you know, he gets angry for even having to be there. Until one day when the, the light switch just clicks in her heart or mind and she's done. Done. She starts preparing to leave him and all of a sudden now he wants to go to counseling. But she won't come. 
He'll come in and talk to me, Pastor, I see the error of my way. I want to change. I want her to come for counseling. I don't want to lose her. Uh, she's not coming. She is done. I don't understand it. I've seen it and I cannot for the life of me bring her back. But there's something about this one that when the pain and the suffering reach her limit, she clicks and she's over. She's done. Guys, if you are that kind of a leader, not even a leader, that kind of a husband, then you need to understand that your days are numbered. Because she will fill up her limit one day and she will leave you. And when she does, she will never come back. It is over. So those are the two extremes. And like I said, hopefully, most of us find a balance in there where we are leading, but we are loving and we are serving. That's what God wants from the husband. Why do we need to be so conscientious about this? Why does it really matter that much? Well, a couple of reasons. If your family is ever going to experience peace and joy, then this is the way to do it. And you need to understand that, man. You set the tone in the family for the peace, the joy, happiness in that family. It is you. That is who God says is responsible. It comes with the job. But there's another reason, and that is this. Because you want God's blessing on your life, and he will not give it otherwise. Now watch this, okay? In First Peter... Peter deals with the same topic of husbands and wives. And in this one verse, 1 Peter 3, 7, here's what he says. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of God. Now notice the last part. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Whoa, what do you mean? Well, God's not going to answer, guys. You treat your wife that way, and then you come to God wanting grace and mercy. No. God says, go back and be the man I called you to be. Go back and lead this woman and love her and respect her and treat her the way that I've told you to. Then I will answer your prayers. Oh, Lord, help us to learn this, okay? What is he talking about when it says the, wa- the woman is the weaker partner? He's probably looking primarily at physical. In that day and age, men dominated women. They physically just overran them and possessed them. He's probably looking at that. He's probably saying, don't treat her disrespectfully just because you can. And so there's a responsibility there that he is to treat her. We are to love our wives in that way. We are to be the men that God has called us to be, the husbands that God has called us to be. Let me read you the story. It'll take me about five minutes. Just bear with me. It's a good story. I want you to listen to it, okay? It says, Johnny Lingo was known throughout the islands for his skills, intelligence, and savvy. If you hire him as a fishing guide, he will show you the best fishing spots in the best places To get pearls, he'll take you to find the best places to get pearls. Johnny is also one of the sharpest traders in the islands. He can get you the best possible deals. The people of Kenawata all speak highly of Johnny Lingo, yet when they speak of them, they always smile just a little bit mockingly. A couple of days after my arrival in Kenawata, 
I went to the manager of the guest house to see who he thought would be the best fishing guide. He says, Johnny Lingo. He said, he is the best around. When you go shopping, let him also do the bargaining for you. Johnny knows how to make the best deal. Then I heard a young boy laughing. He said, Johnny Lingo. He said, yeah, Johnny can make a deal all right. I said, what's going on? Tell me what the, what the problem is. Everyone tells me to get, the, get in touch with Johnny Lingo, and then they start laughing. Please let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, the manager said, shrugging. He said, Johnny's the brightest and strongest young man in the islands. He's also one of the richest for his age. But I protest that if he's all that you say that he is, then why is everyone laughing behind his back? Well, there was this one thing. About five months ago, we had our usual annual festival in town, and Johnny came to Kenawata to find himself a wife. He went to this girl's father, and he told him, I'm going to buy or pay the dowry for the wife, and I want her to marry me, and your blessings, I'm going to pay you eight cows in order to marry her. Now, I knew enough about island customs to be impressed. A dowry of two or three cows was a lot, and four or five cows would get you a beautiful wife in the islands. Wow, I said, eight cows. She must have been something that beauty was beyond measure. Well, she's not ugly, he conceded with a little smile, but calling her plain would definitely be a compliment. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid that he would never be able to marry her off. Instead of being stuck with her, he, he got eight cows for her. Is that not extraordinary? This price has never been paid before. Yet you call Johnny's wife plain? No, I said it would be a compliment to call her plain. She is skinny, and she walked around with her shoulders hunched over, her head down, she never looked anybody in the eye. She was scared of her own shadow. She was plain. Well, I said, I guess there's just no accounting for love. True enough, agreed the man. That's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get special satisfaction from the fact that he's the sharpest trader in the islands, and yet he let her father, Sam Carew, take advantage of him like that. But how? No one knows, and everybody wonders. All of the cousins urged Sam to ask for three cows for a dowry and to hold out for two until he was sure that Johnny would probably pay one. To their surprise, Johnny came to Sam Carew, the father, and he said, I want to marry your daughter, Sarita, and I am offering you eight cows for your daughter without even haggling. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny Lingo. Well, I wanted to fish, so that afternoon I went to the island of Nurabandi. And I asked directions to Johnny's house, and I noticed Johnny's neighbors were all amused at the mention of his name. When I met the slim, serious young man, I could see immediately why everybody respected his skills. However, this only reinforced my confusion about him. As we sat in his house, he asked me, he said, you come from Kenawata? I said, yes. They speak of me on that island? I said, yes. They say that you can provide me anything I need. They say that you're intelligent, resourceful, and the sharpest trader in the islands. He smiled gently and he said, my wife is from Kenawata. Yes, I know. 
they speak of her? A little. What did they say? Well, just, you know, he, the question caught me off guard. He said, I just told him that, you know what, they told me you were married at the annual festival. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrows told me that he knew there had to be more. Well, they also say that the marriage settlement was eight cows, and they wonder why. They ask that, his eyes lit up with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawatha knows about the eight cows. I nodded. And in Nurbande, everyone knows there too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for his wife, Sarita. So I thought, well, there's the answer. He's just vain. Just then, Sarita, his wife, entered the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still for a moment to smile at her husband, and he smiled back. And then she left. (laughs) She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, and the sparkle in her eyes all spelled self-confidence and pride. Not an arrogant or a haughty pride, but a confident inner beauty that radiated in her every movement. I turned back to Johnny and found him looking at me. You admire her, he murmured. She, she is gorgeous, I said. Obviously, this is not the same woman that they're talking about. She can't be the Sarita that you married in Kanawata. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps, they, they, perhaps she doesn't look the way you expected. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all made fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. He said, you think eight cows was too many? And a smile slid over his lips. No, but how can she be so different from the way they described her? Johnny said, think about it. Think about how it must make a girl feel to know that her husband paid a very low dowry for her. It must be insulting to her to know he places such little value on her. Think about how she must feel when the other women boast about the high prices their husbands paid for them. It must be embarrassing for her. I would not let this happen to my Sarita. So you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy? Well, of course I wanted Sarita to be happy. But there's more to it than that. You say she is different from what you expected. That is true. Many things can change a woman. There, There are things that happen on the inside and things that happen on the outside as well. However, the thing that matters most is how she views herself. In Kenawata, Sarita believed that she was worth nothing. And as a result, that's the value she projected. Now she knows that she is worth more than any woman in all of the islands. It shows, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it shows. He said, I've wanted to marry Sarita regardless. She's the only woman that I've ever loved. But then he leaned in softly, he said, but I also wanted an eight-cow wife. Gentlemen, agape your wives. Your wife will live up to the way she's treated. 
That's why God says to you and me that we are to love them with agape love. Husbands, if you will just begin to understand the secret of this, you will have a happy marriage. And you will be amazed at the transformation that takes place in the woman that you've married. If you're here this morning and you do not understand that Jesus loves you, let me read you this verse. It's in John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God says that you're a sinner. It doesn't matter how bad or how good you may think you are. In the eyes of God, you are lost. Not because you're terribly wicked, but because you don't believe. See, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He died on a cross. And that God the Father says to us, He said, this is the sacrifice. The sacrifice. I will lay all of your guilt from the time you're born until the time you die. All of your guilt on Him. And he will die. And he will take your pain, your suffering. And all I ask of you, the only thing that I require is that you turn to me in faith, believing that that's enough. Believing that it will save you. Believing what I've said. And then I give to you a gift. The gift of eternal life. My friend, that's grace. It's not about who you are or what you do. It's about what has already been done for you. And you and I have to come to a point in our lives where we believe it. And that's what I'm asking you to do. If you have not done that, right there where you sit, right there. It's no big fanfare. It's no coming down front. It's no doing anything. It's believing what God has said. Will you do that? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And if you're here this morning, then right here as you sit quietly before the Lord, just turn to God in faith and just between you and the Lord. Just talk to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me and I'm putting my faith in him to save me. I'm trusting in that. And on the authority of God's word, you will be saved because God doesn't lie. For all the rest of us as men, those that are married and unmarried alike, for those of you young men who have yet to be married, Learn these lessons now. And when you marry, you choose the woman that you love. And then you treat her with agape love. You be the leader that God has called you to be. And she will become the woman that you desire. God has made her to be the complement to your life and you to hers. And when you love her that way, the way God has said to you will have a happy marriage. God promised it, not me. God did. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for the family. The love between a man and a woman, it is a mystery. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for marriage and we pray your blessings on each one that is here today, whether they are married or will be married. Father, I pray that we each would have the marriage that you want us to have. May we be the husband that you want us to be, the wife that you want us to be. Father, may we honor you in this relationship called marriage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.